Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Sarah Gabler, filling in for Carousel Baird. Joining me today is Maurice Mitchell, who is a nationally recognized social movement strategist, a visionary leader in the movement for Black Lives, and the national director for the Working Families Party. Maurice will be giving a talk titled, How We Save Us, Rethinking Strategy and Collective Action in U.S. Politics at UW-Madison next Tuesday. That's January 30th at 2 p.m. The event is sponsored by the School for Workers along with the Haven's Wright Center for Social Justice. And we'll put a link to that event in the web post for today's show. Before we dive into our conversation today, let me tell our listeners a little bit more about Maurice Mitchell. Born and raised in New York to Caribbean working class parents, Maurice began organizing as a teenager and never stopped. As a high school student, Marie served as a student leader for the Long Island Student Coalition for Peace and Justice. And at Howard University, after a classmate was killed by police officers, Maurice led organizing efforts against police brutality and for divestment from private prisons. Maurice went on to work as an organizer for the Long Island Progressive Coalition, Downstate Organizing Director for Citizen Action of New York, and Director of the New York State civic engagement table. Two tragedies changed the course of Maurice's life. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy destroyed Maurice's house in Long Beach, New York, and left him living in hotels for months. 18 months later, after Mike Brown was killed by police in Missouri, Maurice relocated to Ferguson to support organizations on the ground. Seeing the need for an anchor organization to provide strategic support and guidance to Movement for Black Lives activists across the country, Maurice co-founded and managed Blackbird. Maurice was a key organizer of the Movement for Black Lives Convention in Cleveland in 2015. Then in 2018, Maurice took the helm of the Working Families Party as the national director, where he is applying his passion and experience to make the WFP the political home for a multiracial working class movement. Thanks for joining me today, Maurice. It's really good to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's dive in. I want to start by talking about the Working Families Party. Um, I w- can you tell us about its goal and how does it see itself working with and against our two-party system in the U.S.? Yeah, well, the Working Families Party is a 25-year-old political project. And it was formed 25, year old, uh, 25 years ago by a number of folks in labor unions, grassroots organizations that were frustrated with the two-party system and specifically with the tendency of the Democratic Party at the time in the late 90s to sort of veer closer to the political center, closer to the interest of Wall Street, for example, um, and farther away from the interest of uh, labor unions and working people. And there was a, a deep sense that working people, labor organizations, grassroots organizations needed to develop our own political vehicles if we wanted to be able to express ourselves in politics. And over the past 25 years, we've grown. We have a presence in, um, in more than 20 states, including Wisconsin. Um, and the work that we do um, is multifaceted, but I'll narrow it down to this one concept, the deep belief that in a democracy, the people should govern, right? We've, I think, veered pretty far from that, where we've almost accepted the fact that most of the people in government are well-connected, are often much more wealthy than us, much more sort of uh, connected either through family Um, pipelines or through um, sort of the traditional corporate pipelines connected to power. That's not democracy. Democracy is is the rule of the people. And everything that we do at Working Families Party is to get right back to that. And so we recruit 
everyday people, educators, organizers, students, to be involved, to be involved in their in their politics, um, and sometimes involved through running for local elections. Um, we take local elections very seriously on the municipal level, like the city level, as well as in our state houses. Oftentimes, the popular conversation about politics is all about the top of the ticket, the presidential elections or maybe federal elections, which we also think are important. But we know that um, our bread and butter and the things that we care most about, like policing and education and you know things like, that might sound nerdy, like land use, but deciding you know, whether or not we're going to have more affordable housing or what might be built right across from my street or um, that happens at the local level. And we want everyday people who deal with things like student loan debt, who deal with trying to put food on, on their family's table, who deal with um, health care costs to actually be in the position to make those decisions. Um, we think that that's essential to have a vital democracy. Yes, and you're listening to Maurice Mitchell talking about the Working Families Party, and I'm Sarah Gabler, your sub-host today for A Public Affair. Um, Maurice, I want to um, dial in a little bit more on what um, or how the Working Families Party and its fight for economic justice against those with unchecked economic power, as you were describing, um, how does that help you communicate the work of the WFP to folks across party lines? Well, we think it's a tragedy that our binary two-party system, and also just over the past, like, let's say 20 years, the um, almost tribal way that we talk about politics is either Democrat versus Republican, you know, progressive versus conservative. Which side are you on? Which team are you on? It almost feels like a team sport. We think that that is a true tragedy, and we want to really challenge that. For us, when we think about politics, like what what really is politics for? Politics at its highest expression is is a venue for all of us to decide how we're going to share everything that we see around us, all of the capacity of our communities. And that's a negotiation that is multifaceted. That isn't a red team, blue team conversation. That is a, a conversation between parents who might have different values or might um, have different racial identities or different gender identities, but all share this deep belief um, that their children deserve a quality education, for example. Um, politics could, at its highest expression, be a, a venue for us to come together around our common concerns instead of this tool to to divide us. And recently, and we see this around the world, as right-wing authoritarians become much more focused on politics, um, the right-wing authoritarian sort of uh, position is that politics could be used as a tool to essentially um, be a tool of, of, uh, of punishment, a tool to uh, further expand either a community or an individual's um, prejudices or cruelties, right? Um, we're deeply concerned about that. We want to see a collective understanding of politics as a as a venue in order to expand our our compassion. And we think that that is a venue that could cut against the, this very binary sort of two party red team, blue team conversation, because we might disagree on a number of things and we might dis disagree on those things very deeply. But my hope is that a majority of us agree with the proposition that, for example, there should be no child that goes to sleep hungry in the wealthiest country in the history of countries. And can we start from that premise and figure out what we could do together as everyday people? The other thing that we're offering is we think that one of the dividing lines is not necessarily this very flat left-right divide, but it, it's, a, it's, a power, it's a conversation about power. And the reality is like we live in a, in a global system that is very, very unequal. Economic inequality is so intense. So we around the world, we have like a few thousand billionaires, just a few of them. 
in the United States, we have a number of them, and they almost live like gods, right? And then there's, um, you know, thousands and thousands of more millionaires around the world. And then there's like everybody else who's just trying to figure it out. And what would it look like if instead of, and we're trained to do this, look up to the billionaire class, look up to the quote unquote elites. We looked toward one another in order to develop solutions to the problems that we face. And, you know, not for, not for nothing, we have again and again and again witnessed, everyday people like me and you witnessed what happens when we give the quote unquote elites command of the vehicle when they when they have their hands on the steering wheel they drive me you all of us the entire world from one crisis to the next and just in our lifetime we've lived through multiple crises and we're living we're living through more and more crises from the climate crisis right to the subprime mortgage crisis to one economic crisis after another at a certain point we need to stop giving these people easy command of the wheel and we need to take command of the wheel um and we have to stop looking up to these folks who have not offered solutions and develop solutions on our own and to me that is a politics that could disrupt the rigid two-party tribal way that we're thinking about things everyday people which is the vast majority of us the people who work every day and provide the value and and provide the 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 riches of this country the people who actually made this country and continue to make this country um against folks who have undue power and spend a lot of their time maintaining and taking more yeah i hear you saying that there's so much um space for folks to really come together laterally and not cede that power not um cede our power to just those with economic and political power, because they'll consolidate their own. Um, right. And, and right. I, I think that's um, what what's so strong about the Working Families Party um, platform is that you know you really take an intersectional approach to political organizing. Being working class isn't synonymous with being white, and then issues of safety, education, healthcare; those are going to unite folks across a multiracial coalition. We believe very deeply that there is an untapped multiracial coalition of everyday people that if we were to find each other and to insist on being in relationship with each other and struggling with each other, we could transform this world and make it a much safer country and world for everybody. Um, but that would require us to resist um, the temptations to stay inside of the tribal politics that has been established for us. And we have to ask ourselves some funda fundamental questions. Who does it serve to remain in these very stark, binary, almost sports team-like political tribes? Who's Who does it serve to, on the internet or um, online somewhere or on TV, See yourself as part of one team and take delight when another team gets quote unquote dunked on, right? Um, versus finding occasion to have some curiosity, to listen and to struggle and to be okay with disagreeing on some things. If you fundamentally agree with, for example, I'll bring, bring it up again, the premise that no child should go to bed hungry. Could we work together and collaborate on that? Not putting aside our differences, being clear about our differences. And through our work on that, could we begin to think differently about our differences? To me, that's what solidarity looks like. So I'll give you a concrete example. I was at the UAW strike line, right? One of the beautiful things about labor unions is that the membership of labor unions is random to a certain extent because you don't choose who you work with, right? Your employer chooses who you work with. So you might be on a, on a like I was at a Jeep plant in Ohio, in Toledo, and you might be working right next to somebody that does not share your identity. 
your racial identity. Maybe they might be in a different age group. They might not share your politics. They might not have the same party registration, but you all share a lot, share a lot of interest. And during a strike, during that fight, you feel those interests and those interests are more salient than ever. And you begin to form a new identity, right? An identity that bridges some of those differences where unions actually are able through the fire of struggle, building true commonality, a true sort of kinship between people across difference. And I saw it with my own eyes. I saw a young black woman who was at the plant for a few years, much older white guys who's been at the plant for decades. Um, the, the older employees were actually doing pretty well. They earned benefits that they were going to retire with, but they were committed in order to support the younger, um, the younger folks. And all of them, all of the union folks were committed to the struggle because there were a lot of non-union workers that weren't getting a fair shake. So us struggling together around common values, and trust me, I'm sure those people have a lot of differences. I'm sure if you had a conversation about who you voted for president last cycle, you would hear a lot of difference. But that commonality, the common struggle of being on that plant and fighting against the corporations and the CEOs who they all could see were fleecing them, brought them together. And to me, that gives me so much hope about what we can do as everyday people when we shift our gaze from looking up at Elon Musk or some other multi-billionaire um, and looking towards one another and looking, looking with curiosity at the differences that we might have. That to me is a different brand of politics um, that is not about one-upping one person or, or another, or proving that your team is better than the other team. It's about actually having the humility and curiosity uh, about in the present, recognizing that our solutions are in one another and our solutions is in the journey, mm -hmm. is in the journey, insisting on one another um, and, and insisting on, on solutions that, that actually support the common will. And if you'll notice, there are a lot of political actors um, that most of their political rhetoric is about punching at somebody or punching down at someone, and they're not offering solutions. And I think we should be very wary about, about following them and their political movements. Yeah. And what you're, you're offering is looking towards one another and reaching out towards one another. You're listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM. Our guest today is social movement strategist Maurice Mitchell, and we're talking about collective action and the Working Families Party. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 608-256-2001. Um, Maurice, I feel like you're saying that there's a lot of um, room to connect both labor rights and civil rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned the word intersectionality. It gets branded about a lot, but I just kind of want to simplify it. So both of my, I'm Black, both of my parents um, are immigrants. Um, they both are union workers. Um, I'm a father. So, so who am I? Am I a father? Am I Black? Who's my, who's my mom? Is she an immigrant? Is she a woman? Is she a worker? Is she a retiree? Well, the reality is that we're, we're all those things, right? And it's not helpful because that's not how life works. And we, we know this, we live multifaceted realities. It's not helpful to reduce anybody to one of their identities, right? Uh, because even, even any one of those identities are not monolithic, right? So, you know, I'm black, there's 40 million black people. We all don't agree on the same, on, on the issues, right? You're a woman, that's half of the population. All women do not agree on everything, right? And so what does it mean to see us in our fullness and to approach each of us in our fullness and understand that, um, that gender inequality is real. And when gender inequality interacts with racial inequality, um, that particular intersection, that particular intersection is a, a real and unique intersection. 
right? And it's actually being noticing how society actually operates and noticing how people actually live and not getting caught in these very, very reductive um, and very, very limiting labels like working class. Yes, well, that is one prism, but working class people are dynamic and that represents like a big percentage of the population. Can we go a little bit step deeper? And we believe that when we're more nuanced with our the way that we notice how things operate and how people actually live, right? Um, like people don't turn off and on their identities, you know, like a, a young working class black child walking from school and feeling the, the concern and fear for their safety on multiple levels because they might get stopped and frisked by police or they might interact with, um, with the lateral violence of their community, or they might be concerned about the quality of their education. That is a multifaceted issue and, and their multiple identities really matter. Unfortunately, this discourse has been robbed of its importance in us solving our problems. And we get into this, this, um, this conversation that I think makes us all <laughs> less sharp, right? around like wokeness and identity politics and whatever, when what identity politics was developed to do is for us to notice those different intersections so that we could all be in deeper solidarity with each other across identity. And at Working Families Party, we take that very seriously because we know how we think of ourselves, which is our identities really matter, right? And so to ignore them, I think, in a human pursuit to connect with other humans is a fool's errand, right? And there's so much we could learn if we approach identity with curiosity. There's so, there's so much opportunity for collaboration and coming together. Um, if identity is used as a cudgel against one another, well, then, yeah, um, then identity um, can be a real problem in social cohesion. But why would we do that if we're interested in social cohesion? Um, and if you're coming from an identity that has historically not been in power, has historically been on the margins, it's so important for people to say, hey, I see you. And that thing that matters to you, how you see yourself, it matters to me. And that's how you start a conversation. And that's really when we talk about identity and the importance of identity and intersectionality, and how that could be used as a framework to look at the world. That's what we're talking about, it's that simple. And we live that every single day. You don't turn off and on one part of your identity or another. They're always operating in different ways. Yeah, you're listening to Maurice Mitchell, the National Director of the Working Families Party, and I'm Sarah Gabler, your sub-host today on A Public Affair. We're talking about nuance and identity, and we're capable of talking about identity and politics with nuance. It's hard, but we're willing to do it. And I want to segue here to um, an essay, Maurice, that you wrote in 2022, because I think it's going to drill down into these topics we've been discussing. Um, You wrote this essay called Building Resilient Organizations Toward Joy and Durable Power in a Time of Crisis. And this is an essay that diagnosis some of the common hiccups and social change organizations. But then you go on to propose ways to make progressive organizing more effective and equitable. So I want to hear a little bit about what motivated this essay, and then we'll kind of go into some of the points you make in it. Sure. So I've, you know, like you said, in your very generous introduction, I've, I've had a lifetime involved in social movements and organizing, and I've seen a lot, I've done a lot. And at my post at the Working Families Party and also in my work, my movement work at the Movement for Black Lives and in my conversations with a lot of people I respect in different sectors of the movement, I began to see some trends. Um, And initially, I was writing in order to understand these things so I could be the best leader I could be to support those in my midst at the Working Families Party. Um, And then I discovered that a lot of the stuff that I was writing and, and a lot of the observations I, I was making, they began to rhyme. So I noticed that people in dissimilar regions of the country and in dissimilar spaces and in dissimilar 
uh, segments of the movement, like maybe somebody in the labor movement or somebody in the reproductive rights movement or somebody on the front lines of racial ju justice, they were articulating issues that were so similar, it was airy. And so at a certain point, I was like, well, this can't be a coincidence. And my, the only thing I could de deduce is that these people who don't know each other, who are in different regions, who are operating on different fronts of the social justice movement, must all be in some ways impacted by some bigger things. So what we're experiencing is the acute downstream impacts of structural things. And so I wanted to understand what those structural things might be. So that was my hypothesis and I began to consider like, oh, wow, we're in a big moment where there's a lot of change. Um, for example, the economic paradigm that we all operate under, neoliberalism is beginning to fray and um, is, is deeply discredited. Even the, even the elite class are beginning to deeply, deeply discredit the system that a few decades ago was considered the only alternative. You know, there were talks after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union about the quote unquote end of history, the idea that that basically this was it. This, this was it in perpetuity. And now, not too long after that, just a few decades after that, that's not the case. We're rec recognizing how fundamentally flawed, structurally flawed that system is. All of us, not just like academics or economists, just everyday people feel it. Um, this, this global pandemic, everybody on earth experienced that, experienced the acute harm to themselves, but also the, the intense feelings of loss that one would feel if, for example, in the United States and more than a million people died over a few, few years. Um, huge shifts in our society. So I was involved on the ground level of the movement for Black Lives that has transformed how we think about and talk about race, anti-Black racism, state violence, the Me Too movement, all these things are happening. And we're in a moment where we're struggling and we're shifting and we're in this like in-between moment when we understand that the old system and the old ways are no longer sufficient and in some ways are dying. Yet there is yet a yet to be developed and birthed new way. And so in that, naturally, it's going to cause a lot of anxiety. And where does where does the anxiety sit the most? Well, in this in this very rigid, unequal caste system, economic caste system, we're going to feel the anxiety most here with everyday people and the people that have the wherewithal to kind of move in this in-between place are going to feel less anxious. So it's not surprising that in our organizations, we're calling to question our, the leadership of our organizations. It's not surprising that inside of our organizations, like social justice organizations that are trying to change the world, people, people inside the organizations are growing cynical because we've witnessed how these institutions that were supposed to be rock solid We've witnessed how the end of history wasn't the end of history. And so we're growing cynical about the things that were received about rock solid institutions, including the institutions like social justice institutions that we're working in. So that was my initial insight. And then I noticed that based on all of that tumult, um, it was causing interpersonal conflict, right? So, so it led to, and I named symptoms that that would naturally lead to um, from this anti-leadership um, sort of position, which is just like this position of, I am going to scrutinize leadership simply because it's leadership or the anti-institutional position, which is like, I'm going to discredit or scrutinize institutions, even social justice institutions that are designed to empower me simply for being institutions. And I wanted to help make sense of that. It's not an interpersonal problem. We're in a moment where people are deeply cynical and deeply skeptical about institutions because the institutions around us are collapsing. And then, and then I wanted to sort of tease out 
how identity could be used as something that's destructive to our institutions and to social justice movements and how it could be used as something that brings uh, brings more solidarity and connection. And I talked about neoliberal identity, right? So the best way I could explain that is that, um, you know, identity politics actually have like very clear intellectual and, and organizational roots. And again, you know, folks should look up the Kohenbi River Collective and the work that they did to talk about and, and to frame identity politics as a tool for solidarity. And they had a very particular political and ideological perspective that challenged that challenged corporate power and challenged white supremacy and talked about the the bigger we and 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 when you remove that ideological perspective but you still are talking about identity what fills that gap what fills that vacuum where there isn't a clear ideology the ideology of the day which is like i said before neoliberalism which is all about your individual needs and all about cons consuming in order to satisfy your individual needs. Well, then naturally identity becomes another tool in the marketplace of power. And if you feel dis disempowered, you use identity as a neoliberal cudgel in, in, in order to satisfy in a very individualized and consumerist way, this deep need that we all have for power, right? And the whole purpose of organizing is to approach that deep need for power in a collective way, challenging this neoliberal idea that we don't, we don't, there is no society and we don't need to come together. And we could solve all of our problems by working harder or by the reading the next self-help book or, you know, all these other things, right? And we're in a society where, you know, the Surgeon General talked about the fact that we are in a society that is in an epidemic of, of loneliness, right? And it saddens me that so many people, a lot of us, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the majority of the listening audience could identify with feeling lonely, could identify with feeling anxiety. And it saddens me that on top of feeling that sense of loneliness, alienation, and anxiety, we blame ourselves. But that is the natural out outgrowth of the logic of neoliberalism that says that we live in a in a meritocracy and that capitalism is a truly free market and that if you have enough pluck and determination you could get it all that myth of course would lead us when we feel empty when we feel disconnected to feel like we personally have failed and what i what i what i wanted to demonstrate in that in that article is that, no, the failing is an institutional failing. And instead of turning on one another because of our deep feelings of, uh, of alienation and our deep dissatisfaction, let's turn to one another and have the compassion for one another to understand that what's happening is structural. Um, and so that, that's the, the thesis of, of the piece. You're listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM. Our guest today is social movement strategist Maurice Mitchell. We're talking about his essay that was published last year called Building Resilient Organizations. And for our listeners, please check that out. It's a fantastic read. And if you want to take part in the conversation, you can give us a call right now at 608-256-2001. Uh, Maurice, what you're saying really, really resonates with me and both feeling kind of like fatigue and despair and some of the organizing efforts I've been involved in watching people kind of point the finger at each other for not being, you know, radical enough to participate in these gatekeeping activities that we do, the ways that we displace our own anxieties onto others within an organization that we presumably are all like on the same team about, you know, I hear you saying that that's a symptom of things outside organizations. And it feels like folks doing social change work are sometimes fighting two fronts, you know, like internally and then all the pressures externally. That's that's absolutely right. And the last thing that I offer is on top of just assessing the problem, I try to offer a solution. So my basic premise is these things will happen. There will as as long as there's people, there will be some conflict between those people. Um, as long as there's passionate people, there'll be passionate conflict between those people. And conflict in and of itself is not necessarily bad. The, the question is, 
can that conflict be productive? And how do we create spaces that allow the natural conflicts that will occur between people ultimately be productive? And and the other the other premise is okay. So I talked about all these big structural problems, right? You know, on top of that, you could add like hundreds of years of of you know white supremacy and all these other things, right? Just add them to the list. Those things are not going to go away at, simply based on our individual will or the will of a small collective of people, right? So what does it look like when you and your organization say, all right, this system of patriarchy and sexism and white supremacy and racism, these systems um, exist, <laughs> right? Which means we should anticipate seeing them in how we operate with one another. And when they show up, when they manifest, and they will in our work, how do we prepare ourselves to deal with it in a productive way that insists that we struggle together and learn together and um, maintain relationship with one another? That's a different premise from this binary idea that um, we're either good or bad, our organization is either righteous or not righteous. And one test is whether or not we're sexist or not sexist or racist or not racist, right? Um, that doesn't provide an opportunity for a collective of people to struggle and learn with one another or for us as humans to fail. You know, and it means if it's true that you're good or bad, naturally, if somebody fails, then the natural solution should be to remove them, right? But if it's, if, if the truth is more complicated, if the truth is that good people who on a day-to-day -day basis are trying to do their best will fail, and that people like me, cisgendered straight men, who honestly believe in a world where gender doesn't dictate your outcomes um, will have blind spots, will make mistakes, and will do things that will reinscribe uh, patriarchy, even in their efforts to undo it. If, that, if we accept that as a premise, and we also accept as a premise, we want to grow the we, and we want to stay in relationship, even as we might fail with one another. That is much more nuanced, much more complicated, and much more, to me, realistic about how we as humans show up every day. And once we get in the mode of um, this very punitive mode, which we're taught from, you know, from birth almost, um, once we get into that punitive mode, um, I've seen it again and again and again, our movements break down, they become smaller, they become more rigid, they become less mass movements that are irresistible and mo more small clubs, right? And we're not gonna gain the power that we need in order to take on corporations in, or in order to be able to transform the global economy to be a regenerative economy or in order to, you know, the WFP um, has, has led around uh, in different ways like in Congress around the call for a ceasefire. We're not going to change U.S. foreign policy if we're small, if we're small and perfect, <laughs> right? And we believe that there's a way to be small and perfect. We're only going to to build the power that we need if if we build an irresistible movement that is compassionate, that is thoughtful, that is humble, that is curious. And so the prescription that I that I have for our organizations is to, is to build organizations that are irresistible, are curious, and are clear, right? That are clear about their North Star. A lot of the um, conflicts that we get into um, inside organizations or in our movements often have to do with a lack of what I call ideological clarity. A lack of clarity about what, what it is, what, what is our philosophy that helps us understand where we are and where we're going. If we could establish that and be consistent with that, then it means we're still going to argue, there'll still be conflicts, but we're less likely to argue about things that 
aren't very productive, right? Like what direction do we go any, any particular day? When we establish that part of being in this organization is clarity around a direction, then we could argue about the stuff that really matters. Yeah. I want to quickly read a quote from that essay that I can I think kind of encapsulates and kind of wraps up this um, point that you're making about, you know, integrity and nuance and irresistibility. You say, quote, there are things we can and must do to shift movements for justice toward a powerful posture of joy and victory. Such a metamorphosis is not inevitable, inevitable, but it is essential. That's that's right. I strongly believe that. And why that that particular I'm glad you brought that that particular quote out, why I think that that's important, the idea of it being essential but not inevitable puts us at the plate as agents. Right. It means we can make all the assessments we want from wherever we're at. And they could be grounded assessments about what might ha- what might happen, what needs to happen, but it's not going to happen on its own. So I talked about the fact that, for example, fundamentally, neoliberalism, this thing that was supposed to solve all of our problems and was supposed to be the cure-all for global poverty, and it was supposed to create unlimited wealth. The fact that like fundamentally most people recognize that it's flawed, even like economists are openly questioning it and talking about what comes after it. There's people, you know, particularly people on the left that see that and they rejoice because they're, I think, assuming that what comes after it will inevitably be something that's more democratic, more open, more readily available for working people you know, um, that's not necessarily the case. Vacuums get filled. That vacuum could be filled by a different model that is from the economic lineage of Steve, Steve Bannon, for example. What we know is that change will happen. And what we know in this moment is that there's a opening. Our organizing what me and you and others do will actually matter to determine who fills that vacuum. And so with our, our mass movements, we have wonderful ideas. We have wonderful principles. But if all we do is focus on, on one side, how right we are, right? Or how morally just we are, that's insufficient. That is, that is insufficient. It's wonderful that we are fueled by our sense of righteousness and that we're, we're motivated by our, our sense of, of clarity in terms of the solutions that we bring to bear. But if we are not an invitation, if we don't do the very hard work of extending ourselves and stretching ourselves and bigging, building a bigger we, others will, the far right will, the authoritarian right will, white Christian nationalist will fill that gap, which is why it's so important that we're in a posture of of being irresistible uh, because others can be in that posture that are offering a very, very different uh, vision of the world. So it, it, it is essential that we do this, but it, it, it will not come based on our thinking about it or tweeting about it. We have to get our hands dirty in, in the building of a bigger we. Yeah. And that means talking to people that don't already agree with us. And what a time to be talking about this. You're listening to Maurice Mitchell, the national director of the Working Families Party, and I'm your sub-host for a public affair today, Sarah Gabler. Let's wrap this conversation up. Um, we're headed into a big political year. And how are you, Maurice, staying strong? How are you avoiding um, fatigue as we kind of move into a time where you know, we want to fill that gap with, you know, the things that we imagine building a better world? Well, that's a wonderful question. And I'll answer it in two ways. Yes, we're in a big election year. It's, it's, I think, critical that we really uh, pay attention, because the outcomes are very stark. The outcomes are very stark for us in the United States and for folks around the world, right? 
um, our country has such a big imprint, has such a big footprint in all the different ways that the direction of who leaves the federal government has impact, not just on us, and if that wouldn't be enough, but everybody else. Um, so that could be daunting to process. And, you know, for me, somebody who, you know, worked very hard to make sure that Trump would be a one-term president, it, it's, it could be emotionally hard to imagine that we're asking ourselves that question again, whether or not uh, Trump should lead our country after everything that we went through. But this is where we are. So what I can't do and what I would never do is to pretend that victory is assured and to pretend that brighter days are just ahead of us. Like I said before, we want those brighter days, but they are not inevitable. We've got to work for them. But the, the thing that, that really feeds me when I wake up every day and I feel a sense of, of excitement, that excitement is drawn from every day, the fact that I have an opportunity to decide who I want to be. So based on all of these things, do I want to be somebody that redistributes cruelty or somebody that redistributes compassion? I get to make a call on that. So that's that's exciting, the fact that I get to wake up every day and reaffirm that I want to be on that side. And the second thing is, who do I, who do I want to be with? Every single day, I decide that I'm throwing my lot in with everyday people. I'm not going to believe the lie of the of the magistry and the mystical leadership abilities of the elite i'm going to throw my lot in with those uaw workers that that brings me solace because i know whatever the outcome whatever it is in a victory those are the people i get to celebrate with and in a loss those are the people that will comfort me and i get to comfort and that brings me a lot of joy, a lot of meaning. Um, so th that's that's the main source, given how hard things are, given how hard it is to watch the news and look at the suffering in Gaza or look at the outcome of the New Hampshire primary, whatever it is. And the second piece is it comes back to our agency. There's things that I don't have that much purchase over or that much control over. I can't control like the programming on Fox News or CNN. I, I don't have access to that. I can't, I can't control who's on the top of the ticket um, and who's running for press. I can't, I don't have immediate control over that. But the things that I do have control over, grounded in that, I get really excited about the fact that um, I get to talk to people like you. And through you, I get to reach your audience. And Every day, in my little way, I guess I get to move the ball for the people that I choose to be with. That is what brings meaning and purpose at a time that's that could be really scary. Yeah, and you're you're bringing us full circle to where this conversation started and the Working Families Party um, objective of kind of like reaching laterally to other working folks um, in this multiracial coalition, and I think. Um, thinking about issues in Wisconsin that that are still really significant in this like presidential election year, there's still like a ton of work to be done around um, fair maps and redistricting, around affordable housing here in Madison and elsewhere in the state, um, abortion access and healthcare. These are all relevant topics here. And I'm curious in the the last couple minutes of the show here, Maurice, um, what what plans does the Working Families Party have in Wisconsin for the next year? Well, we're we're going to be issuing a number of local endorsements because like I said, local politics matters deeply. And so you'll hear more from us in probably like the next week about our local endorsements. And we want to encourage everybody to get involved um, in um, the local elections that'll be coming up in in April, um, because those elections matter so deeply around all the issues that you talked about. Maurice, you know, I'm going to interrupt for just a second because we have a caller on the line. We have Fawn um, asking about building bridges. Fawn, can you be brief? We just have a few minutes left. Yeah, hi. I'm I'm curious about. I mean, I'd love to learn more about. I love everything you say about building bridges and developing relationships, living in relation with people who we don't agree with. Like, what did you? You can't use words like you know, neoliberalism and patriarchy with the white working class 
um, male Trump voter that you sat near, worked, sat next to, on, worked, sat stood next to on the on the picket line. And I think it's wonderful that to keep a common goal in mind. But it's really hard to do when the common goal is let's build society together. I think at the same time it's essential for us to overcome this loneliness and competition that has been built up around us and self blame, um, and really promote joy and being in relation to one another. So how do you promote joy even while doing this? political hard work like do you have parties and you know at the same time as you're you know doing strategy sessions i don't know how you do it thanks thanks fun that's a wonderful question um so i mean i think in it you answered it a little bit right so we are human right and everything we do is a human pursuit every institution that we build is a human institution right um and so just take a second to think think about the things that you're attracted to. Think about what turns you on, what motivates you, when you feel the most at peace, when you feel the most at joy. It's usually when you're connected, right? Um, we, at, as humans, even into adulthood, we never give up our desire for play and joy, right? So the things that I'm always thinking about is how do I put at the center those things that are the most human, in my pursuit of building a bigger we. So like the like the caller said, like some people know some of this academic language about this or that. Um, and there's a role for that, but everybody understands that deep feeling of connection when you're talking to a stranger and you see and feel something in common, right? Everybody knows that feeling. So how do we put that at the center of our work? How do we create spaces when people come together? And what's on the forefront isn't the jargon, which again, isn't a bad thing, but it's your story, which is something that you know deeply and you don't need any um, intermediary to tell you that your story is true. And how do we make people feel safe telling their, their stories? So those are the things that I think about and we work on. And then, of course, celebrating the victories wherever we find them. Let's do that, Maurice. I'm going to have to wrap us up here. We're going to end on this note of connection, relationships, even across difference. And Maurice, we want to promote your work. Um, The talk you'll be giving next Tuesday, January 30th. It's part of a co-sponsored event with the School for Workers and the Havens Wright Center for Social Justice at UW-Madison. We'll link to it. There'll be an in-person and virtual option to attend. So, Fawn, if you're out there, you can hear more. You can also find Maurice Mitchell's work with the Working Families Party and across the internet. You've been listening to A Public Affair. Thanks to our sound engineer, Jay Davis, our producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, our receptionist, Mary Jo, and news director, Shali Pittman. Carousel Barrett is your regular host, and I'm Sarah Gabler. Keep tuned here to your community-sponsored station, WORT 89.9 FM. Up next is Letters and Politics.